All right. How are we doing? Good? All right. It's good to be together. Those of you here at Tyson's location, watching online at any of our locations out in Montgomery County, Prince William County, Loudoun, uh, I'm glad to be able to share God's word and for us to be continuing in our series, Following Jesus, where we're studying the gospel of Mark and we'll be in Mark chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and make your way to Mark chapter 2. And as I mentioned, this series is called Following Jesus. And for a lot of people, when they think about following Jesus, let me give you a picture of what we often think about. This is how I used to think about following Jesus. So imagine in your mind like a pie chart, and there's different pieces of the pie, and it represents our life. And so we kind of have our our work life, and then we have our our family life, we have our our social life, unless you have young kids, you can just take that part out. Um, you, you, have, uh, you have different hobbies, you have your dreams and your passions. And so imagine that pie chart of your life being filled up and there's one little slice that's missing, it's this missing piece. And we come to this realization where we become curious and we wonder whether Jesus might be that missing piece. And so we, we try to kind of fit Jesus into that slot in our life to kind of round out our portfolio to finish off the life that we want to live. We fill our lives with things that are important to us. We notice something is missing. We add a little bit of Jesus into that space, and we expect him to fit into and fulfill our expectations. We do this on a personal level, but this is also how Jesus gets adopted into different religions. So for many people in areas that practice more animistic religions, they believe everything in life is controlled by supernatural spirits, and in order to have a good life, you have to appease those spirits. And so Jesus is often just seen as like a top draft pick, right? So they, he's a rival spirit, another powerful spirit to kind of add to their team of deities, In many religions, Jesus is just viewed as a moral teacher or maybe even a special prophet like in Islam or other religions. A lot of secular people see Jesus as a sort of brand ambassador of tolerance and inclusivism. So you've probably seen the coexist bumper stickers and Jesus kind of represents all these different religions and ideas and beliefs, not just coexisting, that's a little bit of a misnomer, but, but all being equal that all of those things are equally true and valid. Others see Jesus as an inspiring revolutionary whose mission was to fix world problems through social justice or their culture warrior who sovereignly defends their moral and political values. Even as Christians, we can try to cram Jesus into our personal expectations and we reduce him to a sort of self-help coach who gives us helpful tips to upgrade our life or a cosmic concierge that's always available to bring us what we want and make our dreams come true. And listen, here's what we're going to see in the gospel of Mark, not just in this passage, but as we study all of this gospel, you cannot fit Jesus into your pre-existing expectations or your predetermined plans. Jesus came to do something completely new. So if you're exploring Christianity, you, feel, you sense God doing something in your life, you're considering all this, you, you're like, man, I, I, I think I want Jesus in my life. Here's what you got to understand. You can't experience, this is what I want you to take away, you can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life that you've already decided to live. 
It's not what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't come to update your life. He came to give you new life. You got to completely surrender or trade in your expectations, your dreams, your ideas for who Jesus actually is, who he's revealed himself to be. And this is what we see in Mark chapter 2. I want to read from verses 18 to 22. We'll pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that your power is made available to us in your word, by your spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would not only speak to our hearts, but that you would work in our hearts. Lord, would you change us? As we sit under your word, would we not leave the same? God, would you change us? We open our hearts. We open our lives. We don't want to just try to fit you in, God. We want to invite you to change whatever you want to change. So, Lord, would you do it in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of context. There were different factions in Israel during the time of Jesus' ministry. And we don't have time to go into all the different factions, the Essenes and the Herodians and all that. You can look up some of that. But all these different factions had different convictions and different traditions. And two of those factions, two of those groups are mentioned here in Mark chapter 2. So you got the Pharisees, who we've already been introduced to in Mark's gospel. They were a small fraternity of, of fundamentalist Jewish leaders. You got John's disciples. These were disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist kind of came preaching and proclaiming that the Messiah was going to come. He recognizes and points out Jesus as the Messiah. But John the Baptist has been taken away to prison. And, and John's disciples now are kind of in the mix here. And fasting was a strict discipline for both of those groups. Fasting is abstaining from eating for a time period in order to focus on a spiritual need. It's using your physical cravings to help you focus on your spiritual craving. And so the Mosaic law only required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement, but in ancient Judaism, there were at least three other types of fast that people participated in. So number one, they fasted to mourn national tragedies, like the destruction of the temple. Number two, they would fast in times of crisis, like war or plague or famine. And the third type of fast is what we see here in Mark chapter 2, where an individual or particular group would decide to fast for any number of reasons. And the Pharisees and John's disciples, they typically fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, every single week, twice a week. 
And the reason they fasted so regularly basically came down to two reasons. Number one, it was their way of mourning the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel, of lamenting the sins that so many Jews were embracing. The second reason they fasted so regularly was because they were longing for God to fulfill his promise to send the Messiah, the one who would save them from the oppression of Rome and restore the nation of Israel. And listen, they believed that God would do that when they as a people were pure and ready and made worthy by keeping the law. So they tied their devotion to the timing of the coming of the Messiah. And so listen, fasting was their way of mourning over sin and longing for a savior. In their minds, anybody who was serious about God's law would be fasting and mourning and longing too. But remember the scene right before this that we studied last week. In verses 13 to 17, Jesus and his disciples are at a party with tax collectors and sinners. They are feasting with tax collectors and sinners. So think about the contrast. Jesus and his disciples are enjoying themselves and feasting, but the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting. So in verse 18, people start wondering. They're like, wait, if if Jesus is, is such a holy man, Like, if he's such a well-respected rabbi, then why are him and his disciples feasting while the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting? That's the question they ask in verse 18. And Jesus responds with three analogies, a wedding, a piece of clothing, and wineskins. If you're new to the Bible, Jesus never answers a question directly. It's pretty frustrating, I'm sure, for the people of that day. But let's, let's dive into these three analogies. Verse 19, Jesus says to them, he's responding to the question, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he's saying, think about a wedding. And one of the reasons I love being in a multi-ethnic church is getting to attend so many weddings of people from so many different cultures. And I remember my first time attending a wedding of somebody from a different ethnic culture like a more traditional wedding in that, in that culture. And I remember feeling like my entire life up to that point had been utterly meaningless. I was like, I don't understand. This is how we do This is how y'all do weddings? Like nobody told me this. I never got the invite. Like what in the world is happening? I remember going to uh, a Nigerian wedding and I'm, I'm used to DJs and dancing, y'all, but I went to this Nigerian wedding and they were doing the money dance. Anybody heard of the money dance? Okay, cool. Here, like out at different locations, if you know the money dance, then you already, you already know. So the couple is dancing in the middle of the floor, and the whole crowd, because Nigerian weddings be having like 700 people, and so the whole crowd is there, and including like all the elders, they are surrounding this couple, and they are literally tossing dollar bills at the couple, stuffing dollar bills into their pockets. There's a person whose full-time job is to collect the money off the floor in order to give it to them afterwards. I was like, I've been robbed. I've been robbed. I went to a Chinese wedding recently. Y'all, they had 10 courses. Somebody's like, yes, they had 10 10 courses. I don't even... And listen, these weren't like tapas. This wasn't like, you know, a little drop of goat cheese with a garnish on it. This was... Yo, their first course was like ribs. I was like, I don't even. 
mind-boggling. It's deeply disappointing. But this is what a Jewish wedding was like. Like Jewish weddings during this time were these exuberant celebrations, listen, that typically lasted for seven days. And so imagine the groomsmen choosing a wedding as a time to fast. It wouldn't make any sense. Now, remember why John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They were mourning over sin and longing for a Savior. And Jesus is saying the reason the disciples aren't fasting right now is because the Savior has come. The coming of Jesus was the beginning of a brand new era of the kingdom of God. God was in the process of fulfilling all of his promises. So this wasn't the time to fast. This was the time to feast and to rejoice. Now notice Jesus is not against fasting in and of itself, but there's a time for everything. And now is a time in the presence of Jesus for celebration and rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus had come to establish something new. And that's what these next two analogies are about. So look at verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So think about it. Think about it. Old, old fabric shrinks after it gets washed. Now I'm told when you buy a certain quality of clothing, that doesn't happen. But the way my budget is set up, like if you put it in the washing machine and dry it, it's, not gonna, it's just not going to fit no more. So, so we understand what this is like. You take old fabric and it shrinks. So if you take a, a piece of new fabric that hasn't been shrunken yet and you, you patch it onto old clothing, the new piece is going to shrink and what's going to happen? It's going to pull at the seams until it eventually tears the seam and makes the problem worse. And for whatever reason, every time I think about this parable, I think about this picture of my, of my youngest son right here. Yeah, I know you're saying, oh, and I know you're all like, wow, we really need to pay y'all more so you can buy him some new pajamas. You get the picture. Like his old pajamas, these were actually like hand-me-down pajamas, but his old pajamas were not designed for somebody his size. And that's, that's the picture. The old covenant under the Mosaic law was never designed to contain God's new covenant work. The work of Jesus was too powerful, too expansive, too new to fit into the Jews' traditions and expectations. And it's the same point in verse 22. He says that no one puts new uh, wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins like his leg was bursting out the pants. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So wineskins were basically bottles that were made out of animal skin. And during the fermentation process, they would store wine in soft, flexible wineskin. But old used wineskin eventually became old and, and stiff and brittle. And so if you filled it with new wine that isn't finished fermenting yet, it would eventually burst the wineskin. So kids, think about like the pressure building in, in a soda bottle. Like when you, when you shake it up and all the gases are going and it, and it begins to, like the pressure begins to build. That's what new wine does if you put it in old wineskins and it'll burst the old wineskins. In other words, you can't fit something new into something old that was never designed for it. 
And so let me, let me update the, the illustration. Let me give you a more modern illustration for a second, because I know y'all don't understand these old illustrations. Let me just, now kids, this was the first cell phone, okay? Like, I want you to look at that phone. Now, you don't need to know who that is, but just know that some of y'all's moms are feeling all the feels right now, okay? All right? Just ask your parents, okay? Older people, let me just ask a question just real quick, because this was, this was before my time. Like, did they sell like cell phone backpacks? How did y'all carry that thing around? That was like the first cell phone. And then, and then they finally updated the cell phone to this. Some of y'all remember. It's nostalgia. It's taking you back. Kids, I want you to notice. I want you, what I really want you to see here, first of all, I want you to notice an antenna. Y'all are like, what is an antenna? You had to pull that joint up, right? I want you to look at that screen. You're like, what screen? I know, you can't even hardly see it. Look at that screen. Imagine trying to text on that screen. Imagine trying to fit our current technology into that old device. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. Listen, you cannot fit Jesus into your pre-existing expectations. He came to do something new. Listen, you can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life you've already decided to live. He didn't come to update your life. He came to give you new life. So think about this because some of us are trying to download Jesus into a life that is not able to, to, to receive him. Like some of you have been curious about Christianity and you're picking and choosing the different ideas that already resonate with what you believe. But Jesus is not just a therapist. He's not just a coach. He's not just here to, 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 to update and upgrade your life. He's Lord. He's Lord. And when we come into the presence of Jesus and when we encounter his teaching and when it conflicts with what we believe or how we feel, then we have a choice to make in that moment. We can stiff arm Jesus or we can surrender to him. You can experience what Jesus wants you to experience, or you can cling to your own expectations. And this isn't just true for people who are considering Christianity. This is true for many of us who are Christians. That we want to experience what Jesus wants us to experience in our lives, but we also want to cling to our life as we've laid it out, as we've designed it. We want to cling to our expectations of what Jesus should be doing right now in this season for us. He should have done this by now. We want him to change and transform our marriage, but we won't let our hands go of the marriage that we expected, of the things that we think our spouse should be doing. We're trying to download what Jesus wants to do in something that is just not going to work. Example after example after example, where whether you're considering the gospel and thinking about the role of Jesus in your life for the first time, or you're already a follower of Jesus and you're trying to follow him and you want to experience what he has for you, Jesus is not just coming to give an update. He's not coming to just provide an upgrade. Jesus says, if you want to experience what I want you to experience, what I came for you to experience, then you're going to have to lay it all down. You're going to have to lay it all down. 
for goodness sake, you're going to have to give up that phone. You're going to have to let it go. I know some of y'all are still holding on to it. It's a whole new world out here. And so what's so new? And this is what I want us to reflect on just for a couple of minutes. Because some of you are right there on the brink in a particular decision or situation in your life where, where God is calling you to obey him and follow him and surrender to him or, or to make that step, that take that first step in your first decision to finally surrender your life to Jesus. What's so new? What does he want you to experience? What's so new about Christianity? What's so new about the work that Jesus wants to do in your life? Five things. Here we go. Number one, Jesus came to reveal to us a new understanding of God. These are five things that you see in the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant and what God wants to do in our life. Jesus comes and he reveals to us a new understanding of God. Now, you may not have picked up on this if you're new to studying the Bible, but Jesus says something revolutionary in verse 19. To us, it just seems like a nice analogy, but to the original hearers, it would have sounded like blasphemy. So look at verse 19 again. In the Old Testament, so Jesus uses this analogy of a bridegroom, right? Now, think about this. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom metaphor was repeatedly used to describe God himself. So let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says this. It says, for your maker, the creator, is your husband. This is the prophet talking to God's covenant people. Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord who who commands and controls armies of angels is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Who's your husband? The God of the whole earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. Man, I love this verse. Listen, listen. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So now fast forward to Mark chapter 2. Jesus is not just using a random analogy. Jesus is taking a description of God from the Old Testament and saying, that's me. I'm the one the ancient prophets were talking about. I'm the one you've been learning about in synagogue. I'm the one you've been praying to and pouring your heart out to. I'm the one you've been waiting for and waiting on all of this time. Jesus is God in person, the second person of the triune Godhead who came to earth in a human body. He got dirty and hungry and tired and angry and sad. He was fully God and became fully human in a way that we can't completely comprehend. But this is what he claimed and what he revealed in the world and how he trained his disciples to understand him. And so John, one of his disciples, writes this, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
And without him, not anything was made that was made. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But listen, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. And this is why it made sense for the disciples to be feasting with Jesus instead of fasting, to be rejoicing instead of mourning, because God himself had come to them and he came for a reason. Not just to reveal who God is and what God is like, but to fix the problem that all of us share, the problem that separates us from God. Jesus came to die for our sins. And he alludes to that in verse 20. When he says the days will come when the bridegroom, circle this, is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. That phrase taken away is violent language in the, in the original language. It means to be violently snatched away. And Jesus was alluding to the fact that he would be taken away. After three years of training his disciples, Jesus would be arrested and taken away, taken away to be mocked and beaten. Taken away to be stripped and humiliated. Taken away to be crucified. And from a human perspective as a blasphemous criminal, but from a divine perspective as the substitute sacrifice that you and I need in order to be made right with God. And listen, what that means is that God, what that means is that God is not just powerful, but God is personal. See, this changes your understanding of God. God is not just the man upstairs. God is not just this all-powerful force. He is powerful. He's almighty God, but he's not just powerful. He is personal, and he revealed himself that way in the most humble and, and humiliating way. He humbled himself so much by coming in Jesus and then dying on the cross that that in and of itself, the way he chose to reveal himself makes it so difficult for people to believe in him. Because it's not what we expect. He's not just powerful, he's personal. He wants us to know him and enjoy him and be with him. So number one, Jesus came to bring us a new understanding of God, a more complete picture of who God is, who God desires to be for us and with us. And number two, Jesus came to lay the foundation for a new relationship with God. That relationship has to be based on an understanding of who God actually is, not just our expectations of who we think he should be. And Jesus wanted us to have this new relationship with God. A relationship with God is no longer governed by the Mosaic law. It's no longer mediated by a human priesthood. Your status with God doesn't have to fluctuate based on religious routines or your personal track record. And if that's how you see your relationship with God, Jesus wants to change that. If you're really trying to keep up appearances and check all the boxes and measure up to all the expectations, and if you're, listen, if your confidence before God depends on your ability to do all that, like that's exhausting. That's exhausting because every time you check a box, 
You see two more that go unchecked. And so you run over here, you're trying to check that box. And if your confidence in your relationship with God, if your assurance of your status with him is dependent on your ability to check all the boxes, it is exhausting and it is demoralizing. It's hopeless. You can never measure up. You will always feel a low-grade anxiety in your relationship with God. A slight hesitation. Whenever you want to pray a bold prayer, slight hesitation. Unsure about where you and God really stand, but God sent Jesus to bring us something new. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you don't need another priest. Jesus is the high priest. Let us then draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is the work of Jesus This is him laying the foundation for us to have this intimate relationship with God. So on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, we can come into the presence of God with boldness. With this humble audacity that's not based on our track record, but it's based on the fact that we are in Christ and we get the benefit of his track record before God. And that completely changes the way we relate to God. Because the work Jesus has done for us and our trust in him, we can enjoy confidence before God as our father rather than condemnation before God as our judge. And when you really think about it, like isn't intimacy with a person dependent on the confidence that you have in their relationship with you? Like if you're not really sure where you stand with a person, And I'm coming right close to some of y'all's lives because some of y'all are like in that in-between like relationship confusion zone. You know what I mean? You're not quite sure where they're at. You're like, I might be farther than them. It's very difficult to experience intimacy in a relationship that is insecure. Where you don't really have confidence about where you stand with that person. And this is why some of us struggle to experience intimacy with God because we don't really have confidence before him because our confidence has been based on the wrong stuff. It's based on how well we've done that day. It's not based on the objective reality of what Jesus has done for us in his cross and resurrection. Jesus came to lay the foundation for a brand new relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, a confident, not arrogant, not presumptuous, but a confident relationship with God that's based on the work that Jesus has done. And when we really grasp the wonder of what Jesus has done for us, duty turns into delight. Like obedience becomes an opportunity to experience more intimacy and more joy in our relationship with God. But we need to be transformed in order to experience God that way. So number three, Jesus came to give us access to a new power from God. Listen, Jesus didn't come to coerce us into conformity. 
He didn't come to to bend our behavior into alignment with his will. Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin and transform us from the inside out. He came to change our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like some of y'all are like me. You, you know that in order for you to really follow Jesus, something has to change. I remember in my own life, I was telling my church group about this, this, this previous week. In my own life, when I started following Jesus, and this is, I know it seems dumb, but in my life, the one thing I could not imagine not doing anymore was being at the club every weekend. Like, I was, I was willing to give up sexual immorality, give up all these different things. And for whatever reason, I was like, Jesus, I don't know, man. I just like to turn up. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get that up. You know, I, that was like a real thing for me. I needed the power of God to change and transform my heart. He's not just trying to bend our behavior. He wants to change our hearts. And this was one of the most breath, breathtaking promises of the new covenant. That God promised his people, Ezekiel 36, verse 27, that there is coming a day, he said to his people then, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Listen, no longer would the Holy Spirit just come to temporarily empower certain people. As a result of the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would come to permanently indwell all of God's people. And this changes everything. We are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit begins the process of transforming our deepest desires so that we begin to worship and obey God. Again, not out of duty, but out of delight. Not because we have to, because we want to. There's a new dynamic power at work within us that not only changes what we do, but it radically changes what we want. We begin to love what God loves and we hate what God hates. God himself becomes our greatest joy and our hearts crave his presence. And now, listen, out of the overflow of transformed hearts, we're able to live transformed lives. We have new power to love the people around us. Special power to love the difficult people around us. We have new power to fight against urges and temptations that used to control us. New power to implement healthier and holier habits in our life. So, for example, as Christians, we do fast, but out of a new motivation, out of the overflow of what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do, and to seek him for his power and and the joy of the Lord and wisdom in the meantime. Jesus changes our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then he sends us on mission with the power of the Holy Spirit to help others experience what we've experienced, to invite them into this new spiritual family that God is gathering by his grace. And this is exactly what happened to the disciples, ordinary people filled with supernatural power to participate in miracle after miracle after miracle as people heard the gospel and were born again through faith in Jesus and new churches were formed, which leads us to number four. Jesus came to reveal to us a new understanding of God, to lay the foundation for a new relationship with God. He gives us access to a new power from God. And then number four, Jesus came to gather a new family of God. See, this is different than what the Jews expected. Remember, the Pharisees question from the passage we studied last week in chapter 2, verse 16. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And that question echoes throughout the Gospels over and over again as Jesus pushes the boundaries and ministers to different kinds of people. And the Jewish leaders are constantly flustered and frustrated by it. So, so why is Jesus constantly reaching out to people farther and farther beyond the inner circle of covenant-keeping Jews? Why does he receive worship from a known prostitute and then make her a disciple? Why, why does he go out of his way to sit with a Samaritan woman? Why is he willing to heal the children of Roman soldiers, these Gentile, like, pagan, oppressive soldiers? Why does he enter the unclean, defiled house of a Gentile Syrophoenician family? It's simple. It's because the kingdom of God isn't limited to our social circles. It doesn't align with and isn't confined to any of our cultural or political or national boundaries. It was never limited to a particular ethnic group. And listen, this is the mystery of the ages that Paul wrote about. In the New Testament, this is why he calls the church a revelation of the hidden manifold wisdom of God. Because it turns out that the God of Israel revealed in the Old Testament is in fact the God of all nations. And he's inviting people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be a part of his eternal family. It turns out that Jesus came to save the kinds of people that we tend to segregate ourselves from. It turns out that Jesus came to rescue the kinds of people we're so quick to reject. The gates of the kingdom of God are wide open to anyone who trusts in Jesus. The, the table in the family of God has a special seat that God himself has reserved for anyone willing to turn from sin and believe the gospel. And so we as the church of God get the joy of inviting and receiving all kinds of people into our lives as they learn to enjoy the love of God that can only be found in Jesus. And as a family together, like not just in general, but in real relationships, in the ministries that you serve in, in the church group that you participate in, as you interact and fellowship with people on Sunday for worship, like as a family together, we endure the hardships of life. We endure the difficulties of following Jesus. We support one another when tragedy strikes and our hearts are heavy because we're the family of God. And together we anticipate this last thing in number five that Jesus came to bring us, which is a new future with God. You see, this is, this is, this is the new covenant. This is the new work. This is the new wine that Jesus came to bring into the world and wants to bring into all of our lives. Not just this new understanding of God that allows us to have a new relationship with God and all these other things, but there's this new future with God that we long for in Jesus' time with his disciples wasn't really like a wedding ceremony, actually. Because remember, he's going to be taken away. So in a sense, it's more like wedding planning. Like Jesus was preparing his disciples for the joy to come. The joy to come during their ministry as they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in the early church, but ultimately the joy to come on that day when there will no longer be any need for ministry. You know how engaged couples get to sample the food for the wedding reception? First of all, it causes conflict, but that's not my point. Um, God will help you get through it, but they get to sample like all the different foods that they're going to enjoy at the wedding reception. They get a foretaste, a preview of all the delicacies 
that they'll soon be able to enjoy. And this is what the disciples got to experience with Jesus. I want you to think about their life with Jesus. Jesus' ministry was a preview of what the fullness of the kingdom of God will one day be like. So listen to me carefully. If you've been exploring Christianity, every single one of us know that there's brokenness in this world, that the things of this world do not operate always the way they should, that there's pain and there's suffering and injustice and unfairness and, and sickness and depression and all of these things. But think about what the disciples are experiencing with Jesus. His healings were a preview of the day when there would be no more sickness. His casting out demons was a preview of the day when spiritual forces of evil will be fully defeated and extradited from earth into the lake of fire, no longer able to cause suffering and deception in the world. His love for people on the margins, it was a preview of the day when all kinds of people will be able to sit at his table in his presence as equal brothers and sisters in the family of God. His turning over tables and cursing fig trees was a preview of the day when justice will finally be served, when God will execute his final judgment against sin and all who embrace it. And Jesus' presence in person with his disciples was a preview of the day when those who trust in Jesus will see God face to face. Come on, is this not what we live for? We'll see God face to face and finally enjoy his presence without interruption or without interference. But then he was snatched away. And he was crucified on the cross. And after he rose from the dead, before he ascended back into heaven, he promised his disciples, listen, that he was coming back. That he was going to prepare a place for them, like a bridegroom going to prepare a place for his new family. And we know that he's going to do it because we have it right here in Revelation chapter 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This is where all of history is going. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What's that city? It's not a place. It's a people prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, I cannot wait to hear these words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them in person as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The old wineskins are gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is where all of history is going. This is the day, this is the moment that your heart longs for even if you've never realized it, that every single longing of your heart points beyond anything that could be fulfilled in this life. It points to the world that Jesus is going to remake where we will enjoy the presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together with the family of God, unbroken, uninterrupted, no interference for all of eternity. 
This is the day that we long for. This is the newness that Jesus wants to bring into our lives, not just now, but for all of eternity. But so many of us are trying to just settle for fitting Jesus into our expectations. Of just cramming Jesus into this little slot of our lives. And you can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life that you've already decided to live. It doesn't work that way. He's not just coming to give an upgrade. He's coming to make you new. He's coming to make all things new. And he invites you and me to be a part of that, to enjoy it, to participate in it. But here's your expectations. Here's the life you've planned for yourself. Here's your desires. Here's your dreams. Here's your ideas and ideologies. And here's abundant life in Jesus. Here's newness of life. Here's the new wine. You can't have this and cling to this. You have to completely let all of that go, trusting that anything from here that he wants to bring into your life, he's a good, good Savior and good God. And he knows you and he knows the world better than you. And so maybe he'll bring some of these things over here and maybe he won't. But what you can be sure of is that this life, this life cannot be compared it can't be compared. There's nothing in your own life that can be compared to the newness of what Jesus wants to bring into your life. And so whether you need to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, or whether you're a follower of Jesus and you would say, figuratively or literally with your hands open before him and your hearts over you would say, Lord, I, I want you to continue this new work in me. I don't want anything to, to interfere or jam that up. Like you can change anything. You can change everything. If this next season of my life looks completely different, if I'm no longer living here anymore, if I'm no longer at this job anymore, if, if I don't have this income anymore, like whatever you want to do, It'll be better than what I'm clinging to. If that's you for the first time, or if that's you as an ongoing expression of your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to just respond to him. So wherever you are here, whether you're watching from at one of our locations, let's just bow our heads and would you close your eyes. And if you're a follower of Jesus and this resonates with you, why don't you just take a moment between you and him and just, just lift your heart to him. Just, just share with him whatever you're feeling, whatever you're thinking. And for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, but you're at the point, you, you sense God working in your life and you want to make a decision today to trade your old life for the life that he brings based on what Jesus has done for you, his death, his resurrection. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Other people are praying quietly, but I want to lead you in a prayer. And you can just repeat this after me. Lord Jesus, 
I give up my life. I want the life that you have to offer. I've sinned against you. I've rejected you. I've delayed my obedience to you. But I surrender. Thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for new life that comes through your resurrection. I'm asking that you would forgive me and change me and lead my life. Father, I believe today, God, as I think about each person gathered and watching, I I believe that you want to do a new thing in our hearts. It looks different for all of us, God, but I pray for every single one of us that you would make us, our hearts soft and pliable, that you would give us a posture to receive what you want to do in our lives. And God, that you would be the one that gets glory. Thank you, thank you, God. Thank you that you haven't given up on us. Thank you that it's not too late. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.